This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Part 2. Chapter 2. Necessary meditations on the actual, including the mean bread and cheese question, dissipated the phantasmal for a while, and compelled Jude to smother high thinkings under immediate needs. He had to get up and seek for work, manual work, the only kind, deemed by many of its professors, to be work at all. Passing out into the streets on this errand, he found that the colleges had treacherously changed their sympathetic countenances. Some were pompous, some had put on the look of family vaults above ground, something barbaric loomed in the masonries of all. The spirits of the great men had disappeared. The numberless architectural pages around him he read, naturally, less as an artist-critic of their forms than as an artisan and comrade of the dead handicraftsmen whose muscles had actually executed those forms. He examined the mouldings, stroked them as one who knew their beginning, said they were difficult or easy in the working, had taken little or much time, were trying to the arm, or convenient to the tool. What at night had been perfect and ideal was by day the more or less defective real. Cruelties, insults, had, he perceived, been inflicted on the aged erections. The conditions of several moved him as he would have been moved by maimed, sentient beings. They were wounded, broken, sloughing off their outer shape in the deadly struggle against years, weather, and man. The rottenness of these historical documents reminded him that he was not, after all, hastening on to begin the morning practically as he had intended. He had come to work, and to live by work, and the morning had nearly gone. It was, in one sense, encouraging to think that in a place of crumbling stones there must be plenty for one of his trade to do in the business of renovation. He asked his way to the workyard of the stonemason whose name had been given him at Alfredston, and soon heard the familiar sound of the rubbers and chisels. The yard was a little centre of regeneration. Here, with keen edges and smooth curves, were the forms in the exact likeness of those he had seen abraded and time-eaten on the walls. These were the ideas in modern prose which the lichened colleges presented in old poetry. Even some of those antiques might have been called prose when they were new. They had done nothing but wait, and had become poetical. How easy to the smallest building, how impossible to most men. He asked for the foreman, and looked round among the new traceries, mullions, transoms, shafts, pinnacles and battlements, standing on the bankers, half-worked or waiting to be removed. They were marked by precision, mathematical straightness, smoothness, exactitude. There in the old walls were the broken lines of the original idea, jagged curves, disdain of precision, irregularity, disarray. For a moment there fell on Jude a true illumination, that here in the stone-yard was a centre of effort as worthy as that dignified by the name of scholarly study within the noblest of the colleges. But he lost it under stress of his old idea. 
he would accept any employment which might be offered him on the strength of his late employer's recommendation, but he would accept it as a provisional thing only. This was his form of the modern vice of unrest. Moreover, he perceived that at best only copying, patching, and imitating went on here, which he fancied to be owing to some temporary and local cause. He did not at that time see that medievalism was as dead as a fern-leaf in a lump of coal, that other developments were shaping in the world around him, in which Gothic architecture and its associations had no place. The deadly animosity of contemporary logic and vision towards so much of what he held in reverence was not yet revealed to him. Having failed to obtain work here as yet, he went away, and thought again of his cousin, whose presence somewhere at hand he seemed to feel in wavelets of interest, if not of emotion. How he wished he had that pretty portrait of her! At last he wrote to his aunt to send it. She did so, with a request, however, that he was not to bring disturbance into the family by going to see the girl or her relations. Jude, a ridiculously affectionate fellow, promised nothing, put the photograph on the mantelpiece, kissed it, he did not know why, and felt more at home. She seemed to look down and preside over his tea. It was cheering, the one thing uniting him to the emotions of the living city. There remained the schoolmaster, probably now a reverend parson, but he could not possibly hunt up such a respectable man just yet, so raw and unpolished was his condition, so precarious were his fortunes. Thus he still remained in loneliness. Although people moved round him, he virtually saw none. Not as yet having mingled with the active life of the place, it was largely non-existent to him. But the saints and prophets in the window tracery, the paintings in the galleries, the statues, the busts, the gargoyles, the corbel heads, these seemed to breathe his atmosphere. Like all newcomers to a spot on which the past is deeply graven, he heard that past announcing itself with an emphasis altogether unsuspected by, and even incredible to, the habitual residents. For many days he haunted the cloisters and quadrangles of the colleges, at odd minutes in passing them, surprised by impish echoes of his own footsteps, smart as the blows of a mallet. The Christminster sentiment, as it had been called, ate further and further into him, till he probably knew more about those buildings materially, artistically and historically than any of their inmates. It was not till now, when he found himself actually on the spot of his enthusiasm, that Jude perceived how far away from the object of that enthusiasm he really was. Only a wall divided him from those happy young contemporaries of his, with whom he shared a common mental life, men who had nothing to do from morning till night but to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Only a wall. But what a wall! Every day, every hour, as he went in search of labour, he saw them going and coming also, rubbed shoulders with them, heard their voices, marked their movements. The conversation of some of the more thoughtful among them seemed oftentimes, owing to his long and persistent preparation for this place, to be peculiarly akin to his own thoughts. Yet he was as far from them as if he had been at the Antipodes. Of course he was. 
He was a young workman in a white blouse, and with stone dust in the creases of his clothes, and in passing him they did not even see him or hear him, rather saw through him as through a pane of glass at their familiars beyond. Whatever they were to him, he to them was not on the spot at all, and yet he had fancied he would be close to their lives by coming there. But the future lay ahead after all, and if he could only be so fortunate as to get into good employment, he would put up with the inevitable. So he thanked God for his health and strength and took courage. For the present he was outside the gates of everything, colleges included. Perhaps some day he would be inside. Those palaces of light and leading, he might some day look down on the world through their panes. At length he did receive a message from the stonemason's yard that a job was waiting for him. It was his first encouragement, and he closed with the offer promptly. He was young and strong, or he never could have executed with such zest the undertakings to which he now applied himself, since they involved reading most of the night after working all the day. First he bought a shaded lamp for four and sixpence, and obtained a good light. Then he got pens, paper, and such other necessary books as he had been unable to obtain elsewhere. Then, to the consternation of his landlady, he shifted all the furniture of his room, a single one for living and sleeping, rigged up a curtain on a rope across the middle to make a double chamber out of one, hung up a thick blind that nobody should know how he was curtailing the hours of sleep, laid out his books, and sat down. Having been deeply encumbered by marrying, getting a cottage, and buying the furniture which had disappeared in the wake of his wife, he had never been able to save any money since the time of those disastrous ventures, until his wages began to come in, he was obliged to live in the narrowest way. After buying a book or two, he could not even afford himself a fire, and when the nights reeked with the roar and cold air from the meadows, he sat over his lamp in a greatcoat, hat, and woollen gloves. From his window he could perceive the spire of the cathedral and the O.G. dome under which resounded the great bell of the city. The tall tower, tall belfry windows, and tall pinnacles of the college by the bridge he could also get a glimpse of by going to the staircase. These objects he used as stimulants when his faith in the future was dim. Like enthusiasts in general, he made no inquiries into details of procedure. Picking up general notions from casual acquaintance, he never dwelt upon them. For the present, he said to himself, the one thing necessary was to get ready by accumulating money and knowledge, and await whatever chances were afforded to such a one of becoming a son of the university. For wisdom is a defence, and money is a defence, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. His desire absorbed him, and left no part of him to weigh its practicability. At this time he received a nervously anxious letter from his poor aunt on the subject which had previously distressed her, a fear that Jude would not be strong-minded enough to keep away from his cousin, Sue Bridehead, and her relations. Sue's father, his aunt believed, had gone back to London, but the girl remained at Christminster. To make her still more objectionable, she was an artist or designer of some sort in what was called an ecclesiastical warehouse. 
which was a perfect seedbed of idolatry, and she was no doubt abandoned to mummeries on that account, if not quite a papist. Miss Drusilla Fawley was of her date, evangelical. As Jude was rather on an intellectual track than a theological, this news of Sue's probable opinions did not much influence him one way or the other, but the clue to her whereabouts was decidedly interesting. With an altogether singular pleasure, he walked at his earliest spare minutes past the shops answering to his great-aunt's description, and beheld in one of them a young girl sitting behind a desk who was suspiciously like the original of the portrait. He ventured to enter on a trivial errand, and having made his purchase lingered on the scene. The shop seemed to be kept entirely by women. It contained Anglican books, stationery, texts and fancy goods, little plaster angels on brackets, gothic framed pictures of saints, ebony crosses that were almost crucifixes, prayer books that were almost missals. He felt very shy of looking at the girl in the desk. She was so pretty that he could not believe it possible that she should belong to him. Then she spoke to one of the two older women behind the counter, and he recognized in the accents certain qualities of his own voice, softened and sweetened, but his own. What was she doing? He stole a glance round. Before her lay a piece of zinc, cut to the shape of a scroll three or four feet long, and coated with a dead surface paint on one side. Hereon she was designing, or illuminating, in characters of church text, the single word, Alleluia. A sweet, saintly, Christian business hers, thought he. Her presence here was now fairly enough explained, her skill in work of this sort having no doubt been acquired from her father's occupation as an ecclesiastical worker in metal. The lettering on which she was engaged was clearly intended to be fixed up in some chancel to assist devotion. He came out. It would have been easy to speak to her there and then, but it seemed scarcely honourable towards his aunt to disregard her request so incontinently. She had used him roughly, but she had brought him up, and the fact of her being powerless to control him lent a pathetic force to a wish that would have been inoperative as an argument. So Jude gave no sign. He would not call upon Sue just yet. He had other reasons against doing so when he had walked away. She seemed so dainty beside himself in his rough working jacket and dusty trousers that he felt he was as yet unready to encounter her, as he had felt about Mr. Phillotson. And how possible it was that she had inherited the antipathies of her family and would scorn him as far as a Christian could, particularly when he had told her that unpleasant part of his history which had resulted in his becoming enchained to one of her own sex, whom she would certainly not admire. Thus he kept watch over her, and liked to feel she was there. The consciousness of her living presence stimulated him, but she remained more or less an ideal character, about whose form he began to weave curious and fantastic daydreams. Between two and three weeks afterwards, Jude was engaged with some more men outside Crozier College in Old Time Street, in getting a block of worked freestone from a wagon across the pavement, before hoisting it to the parapet, which they were repairing. Standing in position, the head man said, Spike when he heave! Hey-ho! 
and they heaved. All of a sudden, as he lifted, his cousin stood close to his elbow, pausing a moment on the bend of her foot till the obstructing object should have been removed. She looked right into his face, with liquid, untranslatable eyes, that combined, or seemed to him to combine, keenness with tenderness, and mystery with both. Their expression, as well as that of her lips, taking its life from some words just spoken to a companion, and being carried on into his face quite unconsciously. She no more observed his presence than that of the dust motes which his manipulations raised into the sunbeams. His closeness to her was so suggestive that he trembled and turned his face away, with a shy instinct to prevent her recognising him, though as she had never once seen him she could not possibly do so and might very well never have heard even his name. He could perceive that though she was a country girl at bottom, a latter girlhood of some years in London, and a womanhood here, had taken all the rawness out of her. When she was gone, he continued his work, reflecting on her. He had been so caught by her influence, that he had taken no count of her general mould and build. He remembered now that she was not a large figure, that she was light and slight, of the type dubbed elegant. That was about all he had seen. There was nothing statuesque in her. All was nervous motion. She was mobile, living, yet a painter might not have called her handsome or beautiful. But the much that she was surprised him. She was quite a long way removed from the rusticity that was his. How could one of his cross-grained, unfortunate, almost accursed stock have contrived to reach this pitch of niceness? London had done it, he supposed. From this moment the emotion which had been accumulating in his breast as the bottled-up effect of solitude and the poetized locality he dwelt in insensibly began to precipitate itself on this half-visionary form, and he perceived that whatever his obedient wish in the contrary direction, he would soon be unable to resist the desire to make himself known to her. He affected to think of her quite in a family way, since there were crushing reasons why he should not and could not think of her in any other. The first reason was that he was married, and it would be wrong. The second was that they were cousins. It was not well for cousins to fall in love, even when circumstances seemed to favour the passion. The third, even were he free, in a family like his own where marriage usually meant a tragic sadness, marriage with a blood relation would duplicate the adverse conditions, and a tragic sadness might be intensified to a tragic horror. Therefore, again, he would have to think of Sue with only a relation's mutual interest in one belonging to him, regard her in a practical way as someone to be proud of, to talk and nod to, later on to be invited to tea by, the emotion spent on her being rigorously that of a kinsman and well-wisher. So would she be to him a kindly star, an elevating power, a companion in Anglican worship, a tender friend. End of Part 2 Chapter 2